0: A CRJ-100 crashes on takeoff from the Bluegrass Airport in Lexington, Kentucky. What caused this plane to crash just off the end of the runway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
1: I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we apologize again because this week is our second time doing an episode. <laughs> so Miranda doesn't get to be surprised this time. No, but I'll ask, I'll try to ask the same questions. I remember a little bit about when we first recorded it. I don't honestly know if uh, I remember everything. I know the general premise. So I'm not going to be as upset today as I probably would have been. <laughs>
0: but And it's okay, but we're putting this one on schedule anyways. This one is when we intended to do it, at least, because... Thanks, Mike, our patron.
1: And happy birthday! And happy
0: birthday!
2: This is your birthday song. It isn't very long. Thank you! Okay.
1: Now that that's done. So, yeah, again, we apologize. We... Last week was new, and thanks to everybody who listened. We got, like, a bunch of listens. I think now that everyone's going back to work, they're like, oh, hey, there's this podcast I used to listen to.
0: (laughs) I should listen to that again.
1: Yeah. So thanks, everyone, for... Being patient and then listening last week. That was great. Yeah. And uh, what are we covering today, Nick?
0: So today we are covering Comair 5191. This was recommended by Mike. It is his birthday, in case you didn't catch that. That when we, wasn't When planned. we released this. It wasn't planned at all, actually. He gave us the recommendation. We said, oh, it'll come out on this date. And he goes, oh, my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, awesome. So yeah, happy birthday, Mike. We're going to do your recommendation.
1: And thanks for being a patron. Yeah.
0: So this took place on August the 27th of 2006. This was a Bombardier CL-600 2B-19, or a CRJ-100. <laughs> what everybody actually knows it <laughs> as. <laughs> Forget about the whole Challenger 600 2B-19 thing. It's actually a CRJ-100ER.
2: Do those still fly today?
0: The 100s are very uncommon these days. They operated mostly with Comair, but uh, the 200 was... They're the same size, essentially, of airplane, but... The two hundred had a little bit longer range. It had a little few things that made it a little bit better, few, few avionics upgrades, those kinds of things.
1: What so is, the, w- sorry, one, one sec. Was Comera, it, It's just a, like a local a, jumper they're a regional, plane.
0: They're a regional. It's carrier. regional. Regional, yeah. Yeah, they're so for every big airline, there's a small. For all the big airlines, there's also small airlines that uh, operate regional? their regional flights. They're uh, subsidiaries, basically. They they pay into these little little airlines to fly the routes as say Delta Express or Delta Connection or you know, or United Express and American Eagle.
1: Same thing that happened with episode four. Which was Colgan Air, Air. Which was yep. also
2: Continental. Yeah. In this case, Comair was doing regional flights for Delta.
0: Yep, this was Delta Connection. The tail number for the airplane was November four three one Charlie Alpha. The captain for this flight was Jeffrey Clay. He was thirty-five years old. He had forty-seven hundred and ten hours total, of which 3,082 hours were on the CRJ. The first officer was James Polanke. He's forty-four years old. He had sixty-five hundred and sixty-four hours total, which was more than the captain. He also had thirty-five hundred and sixty-four hours on the CRJ, also more than the captain. Wow.
2: Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow.
0: Wow. So both were both were definitely working working on their hours. There were 47 passengers and three crew on board, so the two flight crew plus one flight attendant.
1: Which is normal for small planes like this. The
0: CRJ is a 50-seat airplane, so it was almost full with 47 passengers. The plane was on a scheduled flight from Lexington, Kentucky, from the Bluegrass Airport to Atlanta, to the Atlanta-Hartsfield International Airport. This was to be the first flight of the day for the airplane and the crew. It was still dark outside for their departure. The crew checked in with the airline desk at 5.15 a.m. local time. The crew collected the release paperwork and headed for the airplane. The tower at the airport was staffed by one tower controller for the midnight shift overnight, and they would be handling the departure of this airplane, that one tower controller. The crew conducted their standard pre-flight preparations at around 5.36 a.m. They collected the ATIS, or the Automated Terminal Information System, at 5.48 a.m., which informed them that Runway 22 was in use for landing and departing traffic. Pretty standard at that airport. There were two runways. Both those runways intersected toward one end. It is a smaller airport, so taxi times were short getting to either one of those runways. At 5.49 and 49 seconds, the tower gave the flight their IFR clearance, or their instrument flight rules clearance, to which the first officer read back, okay, got uh, Bowling Green, Uh, missed the other part. Six thousand twenty point seven five six six four one. So, in other words, he didn't catch the whole clearance that the tower controller was giving them, and he missed part of it, and he needed to get it back. So is that normal? Missing that kind of thing? No, generally not. I mean,
1: but I, I we talked about this the last be, time we were uh, recorded. Is they spit a lot of information at you?
0: To be fair, clearances are usually very complicated. It is one of the most complicated things you will get read over the radio, and you need to read back. They require you to read back the information in as complete detail as possible to make sure you understand the entire route that was given to you.
1: Yeah, so that you don't mistake anything. Nothing's up for debate.
0: Right. So the controller repeated the clearance, and the first officer read, ba- read it back correctly. So they cleared that up. At 5.52, and four seconds, the captain began discussing with the first officer which one of them should fly the first leg to Atlanta. The captain offered the leg to the first officer, and the first officer accepted.
1: So he was the pilot flying.
0: So the first officer would be pilot flying, and the captain would be pilot monitoring. At 5.56 and 14 seconds, the captain stated, Com Air Standard, which is part of the taxi briefing, and then he said, run the checklist at your leisure. So, take your time. At 5.56 and 34 seconds, the first officer began the before engine start checklist, reading off the first two items. At that point, the crew began the takeoff briefing, and the first officer asked, He said runway 24, to which the captain replied, two, two.
2: So we're off to a fantabulous start. Yeah, so no one th- knows what
1: they're doing or what where they're going. So the
0: first officer's a little confused. The first officer then continued the takeoff briefing, rather than the checklist, which they had started, which included three additional references to the runway, the briefing did. After the briefing, a short conversation occurred discussing the runway and lights that were in up, And the first officer said, flew in here the other night and the lights were out all over the place. So, in other words, they knew that there were supposed to be some runway lights that were out down at the end. And so they were expecting that runway lights would be not working. And one of them even stated that when he flew in the other night that lights were obviously not working all over the place. At the end of the conversation, the first officer stated, let's take it out and take Alpha. 2 -2 2s a short taxi. So in other words, taxiing to 2-2 was going to be short, taking taxiway Alpha. The takeoff briefing was completed at 5.57 and 40 seconds. At 5.58 and 15 seconds, the first officer began the before start checklist again with the first two items, to which the captain stated that they had already done that.
1: But if you stop a checklist in the middle, do you have to restart, or can you just go from the middle?
0: You can go from the middle, but in theory, you shouldn't break the checklist. You shouldn't stop it. Yeah, you should complete the checklist and then do whatever else you need to do. So
1: it's probably fine that he just started over the checklist.
0: In theory, yes. To which the first officer stated, we did? So even he didn't remember doing those two.
1: Probably a good thing to start the checklist all over then anyway.
0: Yep. Yep. At 5.59 and 14 seconds, the airplane began its pushback from the gate, and the engines were started at 6 a.m. At 6.02 and 1 second, the first officer notified air traffic control they were ready for taxi. The controller instructed the flight to taxi to runway 22. The instruction cleared the plane to cross runway 26 without stopping. The first officer replied, taxi 22, at which point they began their taxi to the runway. So they were already cleared from the time they were leaving the gate, To cross runway 26, go all the way to runway 22, which the ends are right next to each other. And the taxi, either way, is probably less than two, three minutes. At 6.02 and 19 seconds, the captain called for the taxi checklist. At 6.03 and two seconds, the first officer made two consecutive radar terrain displays and taxi checks complete, spoken with a yawning voice. So, in other words, he said, uh, radar terrain displays and taxi checks complete. And both times he was going, uh, 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 I made you yawn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at 6.02 and 17 seconds, American Eagle, so before this, by the way, before the this yawning sound, at 6.02 and 17 seconds, American Eagle 882 departed on runway 22. So they weren't even the first airplane out that morning. I don't even think they were, I think they were the third.
1: Wasn't 24 closed? There is no 24. Runway 24? four. There's runway 22 and runway 26.
2: Yeah, runway 26,
0: sorry.
1: Sorry, 26.
0: Yes, runway 26.
1: That was the one that was closed, right? Yes. Okay. Just Well, and it rechecking. wasn't closed. It was just not in use. It wasn't
0: in use. Runway 22 was the one in use. Okay. For them, for landing and departing traffic. Okay. While still taxiing to the runway, the crew engaged in some conversation from 6.03 and 16 seconds to 6.03 and 56 seconds, which was not pertinent to the flight and was about their children.
1: Which, by the way, it's supposed to be a sterile cockpit. Yep.
2: And... Uh, the captain was talking about his, I think, a three-year-old and an infant, and how it was like keeping his family up at night, and he had a new dog, and mm-hmm. it, it was this whole thing.
1: Which, by the way, they just shouldn't be talking about.
2: Which I also took the time to read for no reason. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. At 6.04 and one second, the first, the first officer began the before takeoff checklist and indicated again that the flight would be te- departing on runway two two. At 6.04 and 33 seconds, the plane held short of the runway, and the captain made a welcome aboard message over the PA. They then completed the before takeoff checklist, so again, they broke a checklist in order to do something else. At 6.05 and 15 seconds, the first officer told the air traffic controller that Comair 121, wrong number by the way, was ready to depart at his leisure. Three seconds later, air traffic controller responded, Comair 191, the right number, fly runway heading cleared for takeoff. At 6.05 and 24 seconds, the captain began to taxi the airplane onto the runway and called for the lineup checklist at the same time. At 6.05 and 46 seconds, the first officer called the checklist complete. So, within 20 seconds, they had that checklist complete. At 6.05 and 58 seconds, the captain told the first officer, all yours, to which the first officer stated, my brakes, my controls. At 6.06 and 5 seconds, the throttles increased and the plane began to roll down the runway. The first officer stated, set thrust, please, to which the captain replied, thrust set. At 6.06 and 16 seconds, the first officer stated, that is weird with no lights. The captain replied, yeah, two seconds later.
1: Again, probably <clears> shouldn't even be talking about it.
0: Yeah, well. That's yeah. at
1: least That's pertinent. Sli- slightly pertinent. They were but... expecting
0: the, runways, the lights to be out, and they did not notice they were out. At 6.06 and 24 seconds, the captain called out 100 knots, to which the first officer replied, checks. At 6.06 and 31 seconds, the captain called, V1, rotate. Immediately followed by, whoa, the controls were suddenly jerked fully backward, increasing the rotation rate to 10 degrees per second, pulling the nose up much higher than normal. The airplane impacted an earth berm 265 feet past the end of the runway at 6.06 and 33 seconds, and the airplane became temporarily airborne up to about 20 feet. One of the crew members then swore. At 6.06 and 35 seconds, the airplane impacted a tree about 900 feet off the end of the runway. The airplane broke apart and caught fire from the impact forces. The tower controller did not see the aircraft depart as he had turned his attention to some administrative duties, but he heard the sound of the impact and saw the fire, so he immediately called first responders, who were on scene very quickly.
1: We didn't talk about this before. We did when we first recorded, but he was the only ATC personnel in the tower, right? Yeah, Nick mentioned it briefly. Yeah, I mentioned
0: it briefly here at the beginning. Yeah, Yeah, he was the only one. He was on the midnight shift. shift. Yep. All forty seven passengers and the captain and the flight attendant perished in the accident, but the first officer survived with serious injuries and was quickly found by the first responders in the wreckage of the cockpit. As for wreckage, the airplane was completely destroyed by the impact and the post crash fire. I mean they obviously. were obviously it was very, very destroyed.
1: It's usually what happens when there's a post crash fire.
0: Mm-hmm. So this was pretty ugly. I mean it happened happened fast. They were taking off, all of a sudden they were off the end of the runway going into a berm and then into a tree.
1: The one thing I I thought was really funny um when we talked about this originally, and even now, is the fact that they called V one and then rotate simultaneously. Yeah. And that's not how that works.
0: No, it's, it's V one
1: and VR are two different speeds.
0: They are. Now mm. in some airplanes they can be closer together than others. And in and this one
1: in this case I think they were only like thirty knots apart something like that.
0: Oh, in this case, they were very, very close. Hold on, uh, I have the.
1: But even so, it probably wouldn't be immediately after <laughs> <No>. V <V1>. one.
0: <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. And they were, they were both early call outs.
2: Okay, I lied about the thirty knots.
0: No, they were like four knots apart.
2: <laughs> v one was one hundred thirty-seven knots, and V R was one hundred forty-two. Yeah. So it's not out of the question that they were one right after the other.
1: Well, not entirely, no, but not. But my he point did go. Being yeah. VR rotate like you wouldn't do that. Even with the You mean V1 rotate? Yeah, V1 rotate. It yeah. you still would have a little bit of a pause between the rotation speed is my point. Yeah. Even if they're that close together. You can't go within like 1 second to Yeah. rotations or less than a second to rotation and speed. And I think
0: one was 4 knots early and the other one was 11 knots early yeah. to call out. So we know that much. But they were yeah, it was it happened fast. And having listened to the recording, which there is actually the real recording, um, you can find it on YouTube. Yep. It is, yeah, it happens really fast. VR rotate, or V1 rotate, just about that quickly. And then you just hear, whoa!
2: Whoa, yeah, probably. (laughs) If we know how to do it, we will insert the clip of that here. It is weird with no lights. Yeah.
0: 100 knots. They want to rotate. Whoa!
2: Okay. Is that all you got? That's all I got. Okay. Right now. So, this investigation was performed by the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, as expected, and they did recover both black boxes and ship them to Washington, D.C. for analysis. Normally during my analysis sections of this podcast, I detail some of the paths that investigators went down before ruling them out, but this investigation was nothing like that. It was pretty evident what had occurred once they interviewed air traffic control, and the cockpit voice recorder data bolstered this idea even further. Problems started even before taxiing started. Per the Comair Operations Manual, the first time a crew flies together, they must read out the standard taxi information, specifically that the airport diagrams were out and available and crossing runways required extra attention as well as what runways should be crossed. After the first flight together, a call-out of Comair Standard is all that is required. During this flight's taxi briefing, you may recall, the captain just called out Comair Standard and moved on. This was their first flight together. So that shouldn't have happened. So they weren't Ba-dum. supposed to do that. Ba-dum. Ba-dum. During the takeoff briefing, the first officer mentioned that when he flew in a few nights ago, a bunch of lights were out on the runway, which he said in reference to the briefing that the runway and identifier lights were out. He also did not mention that they needed to cross runway 26. They were then given clearance to taxi to runway 22 by the tower, which implicitly included the clearance to cross runway 26. It was not explicitly said. Two previous flights were given the same taxi clearance previously without issue.
1: Also, I figured this out quite easily. They just didn't taxi across so any no. runway. Well, <laughs> this was about the time Miranda
2: figured it out. Yeah. yeah. And, and Yeah.
1: <laughs> we dropped a lot of hints. I was, like, hints. <laughs> I was but... like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, we had the we had the visual up too, and that will be on the website. But once you see it, you'll get it. You'll be like, Oh yeah, they didn't. <laughs> There's a path in red and a path in blue, and you'll see. Oh, oh, (laughs) oh! They didn't
0: go to the right place. No. Um,
1: And for
2: reference, runway two two that they were supposed to take off on was seven thousand and three feet. Runway any long enough. Runway two six was
1: thirty five hundred feet, which is not long enough. (laughs) That is half. Way too
0: short. And the problems started even before any of that, right?
2: Yes, but le- let me... I okay. still have a script to follow. Okay, okay. okay. I want to make sure I don't miss anything. During their taxi, as we talked about, the crew resumed a the conversation they had earlier when they were still at the gate regarding the captain's kids and new dog. The flight data recorder says that they held short of runway 26, which was odd, given that their clearance was to taxi all the way to runway two. The first officer was in the middle of his before takeoff checklist and then finished off with requesting takeoff clearance, which was given. They had stopped at this hold short line for 50 seconds during this time before turning on to runway two six.
1: Yes. Which by the way, if you don't know, the numbers of the runways are gigantic. Which is why (laughs) I specifically mentioned that they were sitting there for almost a minute. And the literally the the two six.
0: (laughs) Well, there's big red signs as you enter the runway. And then there's big numbers printed on the runway.
2: And there's a couple of other indicators that would have helped, too, that they had. Um, so they had their heading bug set to 227 degrees in accordance with the correct takeoff. So on your heading indicator, you have the ability to move these bugs or like little arrows, I guess, mm-hmm. is the best way to describe them to a certain value. And so they had their set to match runway two, which wasn't exactly 220 degrees is 227 degrees so that's what they set their heading bugs to if and it, if it was where they were supposed to go they should be pointing straight. it should have been pointing straight up and down and it wasn't and
1: they just didn't see that or they obviously as we can all tell from the little bit we've heard of the cvr they just weren't paying attention no no Also, the runway has painted stripes on
2: it to indicate the width of the runway. And runway 26 was 75 feet wide, as opposed to runway 22, which was 150 feet wide. So there's that.
0: Twice as wide.
2: And lastly, there was a lack of runway lighting on runway 26, though this is the source of confirmation bias on the first officer's part. He had specifically said that he noticed that all the lights were out. He's expecting lights to be out. And so he confirmed his thoughts that this was Runway 22 when he saw that lights were out, which the lights were out on Runway 26 because it just wasn't in operation, I guess is my question.
0: It wasn't the main runway and it may have had issues with lighting as well. We don't know.
2: Oh Okay. I just didn't know if it was common practice to turn off lights of runways not in use. Not necessarily. Okay. Oh, and this was all the um about the lights that was all brought up during their takeoff roll after they couldn't have stopped. So that's fun. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So now this whole situation seemed really odd to the flight crew's colleagues. In interviews with their peers, everyone said that both the captain and first officer was, were competent. The captain showed good crew resource management, and the first officer was actually preparing to upgrade to captain. And it was said he would have made a great captain because of his strong adherence to standard operating procedures, to which I laugh, ironically. So what went wrong? it was not evident at any point in the cockpit voice recording that the crew was unsure of their position. They were confident that they were turning onto runway 22. So investigators went all the way back to when the crew arrived at the airport for this flight. After leaving the Comair Operations Center, they went to the ramp where there were two Comair CRJs, and they boarded the wrong
1: one. Which, by the way, I don't even know how you could even do that.
0: Well, they are, I mean, I mean they look basically the same. They Uh, just didn't look at the the tail number. The tail
1: number's different. Which
2: which was on their flight release papers. And they even went so far as to start the APU on the wrong plane. That's how long it took for someone to come aboard and be like, um, I think you're on the the wrong plane." plane.
0: Yeah, it was a ground crew member that was like, this airplane isn't supposed to leave yet, so you're on the wrong one. We loaded all your stuff onto the other one.
1: Yeah. The other thing I have an issue with is even if, especially if you have two of the same planes... Right next to each other. Yep. Wouldn't you want to just check, check to make sure? I feel like that would be the most logical thing to be like, these are the same plane. Maybe, Maybe I should check. Stop it. We <laughs> haven't done that in a while in our defense.
0: Yeah. But no, it's true.
1: I feel like, again, with the cover in your butt thing, just check before you get on the plane. It's not that hard. My lord.
2: So despite this uh, slight mishap, Both of the crew were relaxed once in the correct plane and were under no time pressure, which I find interesting after listening to the CVR, where they talked super fast and seemed to rush through their
1: checklists. They also were talking about stuff they weren't supposed to be, so.
0: Yes. Well, and to be fair, they didn't have a very long time between gate and takeoff. I mean. I know. But it
1: also, to me too, it also feels like uh, going into autopilot. You know what I mean? Like, you just do it because you've done Uh it so often? I mean, yes. I realized that was a pun. (laughs) I didn't do it on purpose. (laughs) But yes. You just go in, you just do what you normally do, because that's what you do every day, but when you're not paying attention, obviously things happen that aren't supposed to. Yep. Right. This is also the point at which they began their non-pertinent conversation,
2: which was continued during the taxi for 40 seconds out of the 150-second taxi, is what I think that said. One thing that may have contributed to their rather chillax demeanor of uh, the crew is that the captain continually used the phrase, at your leisure, which you may have noticed. He used this phrase a total of five times while talking to the first officer at various points during the checklist, which may have been a subliminal indication that the non-pertinent conversation was okay, despite the flight crew's well-known discipline in the cockpit. The NTSB had at that point investigated several other incidents of reduced cockpit discipline and took this time to reiterate that, quote, it is the captain's responsibility to structure the manner in which his crew will accomplish its duties. He must set the tone for how this information will be proffered, end quote. Long story short, they took off on the wrong runway because they didn't have
1: a sterile cockpit. Which, obviously, they just weren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like... I mean, it's early in the morning, probably pretty tired.
0: Yep.
2: Could and be. There wasn't
0: uh, the only, you know, that yawning was the only indication of such, though, because even the people at the, the flight desk said that they were, they seemed totally awake and alert, fine, and were having conversations. Yeah, and you can and seem such. that way. Yeah. Of course, of course.
2: But they did not, uh, the NTSB did not go further into fatigue. As far as I know, it was not a factor.
0: They pretty much determined they couldn't. Determine. They couldn't determine that it was a factor. So they went and said that it's not one. They said that it was more confirmation bias tied with a leisure, leisurely atmosphere in the cockpit and the lack of following proper procedures, following the checklist completely all the way through every time.
1: Yeah. I think just because it's that early in the morning, even if you're fully awake... Because when I have to go to work, it's 5 o'clock in the morning. I have to wake up. Yep. And... I may be perfectly awake when I get to work, but that doesn't mean I'm not tired. Yeah. yeah, right. So just having a little bit of tiredness probably could have contributed to the fact that they were like, yeah, it's fine. And there's a lot
2: of structure and formality built into the cockpits, especially during sterile cockpit, quote unquote, hours. And that's there for a reason. And to discount that and write that off is really irresponsible, which is what people thought was really weird. And it's
1: dangerous. Obviously,
2: yeah,
0: and this may not have been normal for these two at all. More than likely, as a matter of fact, it wasn't. But
1: it wasn't, and that was this... also their first time flying together too. Right. So but that might still, have had something this, to do with it.
0: This morning, this one particular morning, they just happened to kind of be lackadaisical about everything, and that's when
2: cost it's... at least one of them their lives. Yeah.
0: This is yeah. That's always the worst and time for it.
2: People died, and people died, <laughs> um, and we. I watched an interview with the first officer um, several years afterwards, and he had a lot of survivor's guilt. He said after the incident, he went through several years of alcoholism, to which I'm like, only a couple years. Good job! Because there are a lot of people who would have continued to go through that. But still.
1: Yeah, it's I could see why, especially since he was in the cockpit, why he would have survivor's guilt he was the sole survivor for one. Yeah. Well, And two, he, he, he partially contributed to the fact that this happened.
0: Yep. A lot of circumstances too didn't didn't help him with that because
1: with the lights being out. Well,
0: okay, so there was that, and but the, then
1: and the the way Alpha the ta- the Alpha taxiway was,
0: Yeah. We'll get into et that. We'll get the we'll get into that in a minute, but also because after all of this happened, there were a lot of families that blamed him and the captain and i mean they they're not wrong no but they also they took it to court i mean it was you know you have survivor's guilt plus you get sued sued and you know you have all these people that are angry at you about it like that just adds on top of it that makes it tough
1: i'm not saying that suing him was a bad idea because it is negligence to a degree however again you still have to put in the fact of the human factor too there's
0: human factor and i mean mistakes the captain was as much involved as he was in that and And if not more so and
1: he couldn't have you know because he died he couldn't take part of the blame (laughs) so that was just the way it was
2: hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if If. only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news
0: And some of this will delve even deeper than you than you think. So the NTSB found that both crew members were qualified and had no evidence of any medical or behavioral issues. Now, I kept this one in here. Normally, I would skip this one. However, this, this next line I'm going to read as part of this first finding is why. The crew had more than the required rest period prior to the flight. Hmm. So I kept that one in there because that was actually something that was thought of as a factor in this because of... The yawn, and of course it was first thing in the morning, it was dark for all of this. They So of course they looked into it, and they found that the rest period, so the period of time before between the previous flight and this flight, was more than enough for the crew to get enough sleep. Now, did they? Mm, don't know.
1: Yeah, that's a maybe, maybe not.
0: Even you know, if
1: they did... Getting too much sleep is almost as bad as getting not enough sleep.
0: It can be. And the thing is is that they, you know, we don't know if they got enough sleep or too much sleep or anything like that. But they, we do know that the rest period, so the time between flights, was enough for them to get enough sleep.
2: Which is basically all that can be regulated, really. Yes. It's extensive to ask pilots
1: to, like, log their sleep time. Yeah, it doesn't work. Just be a responsible human being and have the right amount of sleep. Yeah.
0: They found that the crew believed that the airplane was on runway 22 when they taxied onto runway 26 and began their takeoff roll. So they found that the crew legitimately thought they were on runway 22. They didn't even notice anything wrong. Which I
2: kind of talked about.
0: Yeah. They found that the crew recognized something was wrong beyond the point at which the airplane could be stopped. So they recognized something was wrong pretty much at the moment that it went wrong. And they couldn't do anything about it at that point. They found that because the airplane taxied onto and attempted to take off on runway two six, the accident was a runway incursion. There's a there's a word.
2: And this is actually a really interesting finding. Yeah. Because by the FAA's definition, this was not a runway incursion.
0: Right. But the NTSB found that it was one.
2: Per the ICAO definition. Right. So the safety board actually had a forum about this in March of two thousand seven. And what an incursion means, because FAA's definition to this point was any occurrence in the airport runway environment involving an aircraft, vehicle, person, or object on the ground that creates a collision hazard or results in a loss of required separation with an aircraft taking off, intending to take off, landing, or intending to land. Basically, they defined a runway incursion as like a physical barrier, Rather than the ICAO, who defines a runway incursion at this point as any occurrence at an aerodrome, meaning airport, involving the incorrect presence of an aircraft, vehicle, or person on the protected area of a surface designated for the landing and takeoff of aircraft.
0: Which is more the understood definition, I think, in aviation.
2: And actually, I I think there was a runway incursion with a Southwest flight a couple months ago?
0: I don't know, probably.
2: Where someone got hit?
0: Yes. Yes, in Austin. That wasn't even a couple months ago. That was like a month ago.
2: So that's an example of a runway incursion. Thin-
0: yeah, things do happen, um, and but I think in aviation, it's understood among pilots. I mean, I understood it too. Just that a runway incursion is any time basically anyone or anything enters a runway, and they're not is, authorized. That to. is not allowed to. At any point in time.
2: And so at this forum in March of 2007, the FAA announced that it planned to revise its definition of a runway incursion to align with the ICAO's definition by the end of the fiscal year 2007, and it would begin reporting runway incursions according to the revised definition in fiscal year 2008.
0: And I don't think that the FAA's definition was necessarily wrong.
2: It wasn't because as full of a definition. It wasn't as full of a definition. It was too specific.
0: Yes, and I understand that. I understand that they think of it as a blockage, and it technically was, because had another airplane been cleared for something on runway 26, they would have been considered to be in the way of that airplane. So it technically still would have been correct, but it still would have been a runway incursion, but I understand why they didn't consider it one. I still have quarrels with that, because, I don't know, but that's, that's really beside the point. The NTSB found that Adequate cues existed on the runway surface, and available resources were present in the cockpit to allow the crew to successfully navigate from the ramp to the correct runway. In other words, they had everything they needed to know that they were in where they were and that they were on the wrong runway. They found that the flight crew members' non pertinent conversation during taxi, which was not in compliance with FAA regulations and company policy, likely contributed to their loss of positional awareness. They found that the flight crew failed to realize that they were taking off on the wrong runway because they did not cross-check and confirm the airplane's position on the runway before takeoff, and they were likely influenced by confirmation bias. Those lights being out, this and that, you know. And they, they didn't cross-check their instruments, they didn't cross-check each other, nothing. They found that even though the flight crew made some errors during their pre-flight checklists and activities, and the taxi to the runway there was not enough evidence to prove whether fatigue affected their performance.
1: Which we already talked about.
0: Yep. They found that the crew's noncompliance with standard operating procedures, including the abbreviated checklists and the non-pertinent conversation, likely created an atmosphere in the cockpit that enabled the crew's errors. And here we go. Now we dive into something totally different. They found that the tower controller did not notice the flight crew had stopped the airplane short of the wrong runway because he did not anticipate any problems with the airplane's taxi to the correct runway, and thus paying attention more to his radar responsibilities than his tower responsibilities.
1: Which, by the way, I have huge qualms with. I feel like you have a job. It's one job. Look at the plane until it takes off. Yes. And I realized he was the only one there. And that sucks that they only had the staffing to have one person there. Yes. And I'm not saying that's good. Actually, I'm saying it's probably the opposite. You should probably always have two people there. uh, Just so that... Even if someone like needs to take a break or something, you know? What if you gotta go pee? Right. but
0: and we'll get into that in a minute. Because there's I just definitely... Don't... There's a lot that goes with this.
1: But I have so many issues with the fact, like... And I get it. Being the only person at work. I've been the only person at work before. That sucks. But do your job right. Mm-hmm. Don't assume anything. We've talked right. about that before. Assumptions are dangerous. Never assume anything right if he had watched them if he had been watching them he would have been like hey uh you're not <laughs> at the right runway and it probably would have fixed the problem but he wasn't looking at them so
0: correct and yeah this happens it's unfortunate my thing is it's not his fault
1: i'm not saying it's his fault because if they had been paying attention they would have found out they were at the wrong one way on their own right. i'm saying that he could have been another factor that could have helped them not take off on the wrong runway. And this is
0: absolutely true, and I think this is what the NTSB is getting at. But we'll get more into that in a minute, because that is not the only thing they have to say about the controller. They found that the controller did not detect the flight crew's attempt to take off on the wrong runway, because he, instead of monitoring the airplane's departure, he performed a lower priority administrative task that could have waited until he transferred responsibility for the airplane to the next ATC facility. So he was busy doing something else. Now, why was he doing that? Because he was used to doing that. He's not normally the air traffic controller that actually took care of handling the airplane's departures. And so he wasn't used to monitoring aircraft the way he had to that day. It's not said that he didn't do it before. It was just not what he did normally. And so he wasn't used to having to monitor the airplane the whole time.
1: Which is another issue. If you're going to have one person be there... Have it be the person who normally does it, maybe? Yeah. You would think. Or train or, the person? Yeah. Or right. just have to He was
0: people? trained. He was trained. He was qualified, all these things. But, but he was used to doing other duties in this tower. And he was, you know, you, you also figure this airport's not very busy. These were like the three flights that were going to leave that morning. That's all he had to take care of. So he figured it was going to be super easy. He could keep doing the things he normally is used to doing in the tower and that would kind of be on the side. Now, that said, when you are the tower controller on duty, those are your primary duties. That is what you have to do first before anything else. You monitor the airplanes. They found that the controller was most likely fatigued at the time of the accident, but the extent of which was not known, and the extent that it affected his decision-making could not be determined, in part because his routine responsibilities did not consistently include the monitoring of takeoffs. There it is. He doesn't normally pay attention to the airplanes taking off because it's not normally his responsibilities. His responsibilities are other things in the tower.
1: Also, being fatigued doesn't help either.
0: Right. He was probably fatigued. If you're Again, you tired. They don't, they don't know how much. They don't know how much that affected anything. They can't prove it. They can't prove anything. And it doesn't matter. But he was awake
1: end. when your usual circadian rhythm would be like, you should be asleep. Yes. Which, in and of itself, if you've ever tried to stay up to do something in the middle of the night and not go to sleep. Yep. It's hard. And we talked about that in the last episode, too. Yes. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's completely his fault. In in fact, it probably, if anything, was the scheduling manager's fault. But... We'll get to that. My point being, this is a perfect storm of things that if one thing didn't happen, probably wouldn't have happened. (laughs) Yep.
0: They found that the FAA operational policies and procedures at the time of the accident were deficient because they did not promote optimal controller monitoring of aircraft surface operations. They were saying that the FAA didn't have enough policies and procedures in place requiring air traffic controllers to be monitoring aircraft movements while they're on the ground. Basically, they said that he could have ignored them while they were taxiing the entire time, and it would have been completely illegal. Yep. So there was nothing that they could really push against this air traffic controller anyways for not monitoring them, which it's not his fault again. It was really the fault of the crew they weren't paying attention but also he wasn't he was another check and balance in this that could have saved those lives they found that the first officer's survival was directly attributed to the the prompt arrival of the first responders
1: good for the first responders yeah no
0: kidding their ability to extricate him from the cockpit wreckage and his rapid transport to the hospital were where he received immediate treatment were key to his survival They found that the emergency response for this accident was timely and well-coordinated, so good on them.
2: Unlike the last episode, yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which had a few issues.
0: Yep. They found that a standard procedure requiring transport pilots confirm and cross-checking that their airplane is positioned at the correct runway before crossing the hold short line and initiating a takeoff would help to improve pilots' positional awareness, saying that before you even enter the runway, make sure that they're at the right place, check, verify that with one another.
1: Even if you're not going to watch them take off, at least check to make sure they're in the right place.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: They found that the implementation of a cockpit moving map display or cockpit runway alerting system on air carrier aircraft would enhance flight safety by improving positional awareness. We'll get more into this later. At the time, this wasn't necessarily a practical finding or recommendation. Now, absolutely. And we'll get into why that is later.
1: Tekumenologies.
0: Yes, technology advances at the time. With the airplane, it didn't make any sense. It would have been extremely expensive. But now, yeah, it makes some sense. They found that enhanced taxiway centerline markings and surface painted holding position signs provide pilots with additional awareness about runway and taxiway environments. So big giant signs painted on the ground, and those do exist. uh, As you enter runways at most airports, at least in the United States, there are giant red painted signs that say this is runway, you know, 2-2, 2-2, so that as you're crossing over it, you're kind of forced to think about it. And they believe that adding those with more emphasis and enhanced center line markings and surface painted holding position signs provide pilots with additional awareness. So, just making them more obvious. They found that this accident demonstrates that 14 Code of Federal Regulations 91.129i might result in mistakes that have catastrophic consequences because the regulation allows an airplane to cross a runway during taxi without a pilot request for a specific clearance to do so. This one I think is probably the most important finding of them all because I think the key thing here was that it was legal for the air traffic controller to clear them at the beginning of their taxi to taxi via alpha to runway 22, clear to cross runway 26 as one entire instruction. So before they ever even left the gate, they were cleared to cross runway 2-6. Instead, they should have been cleared to cross runway 2-6 and then proceed to runway 2-2.
2: As though they had, like, short-term memory loss. As they got there.
0: Yes, essentially. And that is generally how it's treated at most airports. You taxi to a runway and you are cleared to either cross it as you get there, or you have to request it, or you hold until that that clearance is given to you to cross that runway. And then they give you the instructions to hold short or taxi onto runway 22.
1: And part of that, too, is just crossing traffic. Although here, that wasn't the case. But at other airports, you need to be careful with with stuff coming in and going out that people don't run into each other.
0: Of course. So obviously that's paramount, but that basically that it was legal for them to get the instruction to cross 26 and go all the way to 22 was, I mean... That's the whole reason this broke down, if you ask me, is because they were given that clearance to go all the way there. They didn't even have to think about the fact that they weren't... Like, they were given clearance to take off on runway 22 before they ever crossed runway 26. And therefore, when they got to a runway, they held short, and then they took off. That just blows my mind a little bit, because if they had been given the clearance to cross runway 26, and then the clearance to take off on runway 22 after they did that... They would have never taken off. It would have never happened. They found that if controllers were required to delay giving a takeoff clearance to an aircraft until it has crossed all intersecting runways to a departure runway, the increased monitoring of the flight crew's surface navigation would reduce the likelihood of wrong runway takeoff events. So again, saying waiting until they've crossed all the other runways they have to cross to get to their departing runway before giving them the clearance to take off that would have saved them. Yep. This is in place, by the way. They found it they found that if controllers were to focus on monitoring tasks instead of administrative tasks when the aircraft are in controllers area of operations the additional monitoring would increase the probability of detecting flight crew errors. So again that tower controller instead of doing his other tasks if he were full time monitoring that airplane until it was out of his responsibility then he could do whatever else he needed to do.
1: Or even like I said until they got to the right runway. Yeah. And then gave them clearance and then it would have been fine.
0: This is why I think I could be a tower controller because I like looking at airplanes. I could sit there and watch the airplane taxi all the way from the gate to take off.
2: They also have one of the highest occupational suicide rates.
0: I mean, to be fair, yeah. It is a tough job. I it's Very not the stressful. one that, It's not one that I would actually necessarily want to do, but
1: it sneak peek, a friend of mine will be coming on soon. He is an ATC major at Metro at the Metropolitan State University of Denver which is where I went to school, which is how I know him.
2: He'll be guest starring in an episode in August.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. so we can ask him all about the horrible stresses of ATC.
2: If you guys have any questions you want us to ask him prior to then, please message us, post on our page. Email
1: us. Do stuff. Any of the above.
2: Okay,
0: continuing. Yep. We're getting through the findings. I promise there's only a handful more they found that even though the air traffic control manager's decision to staff midnight shifts at Bluegrass Airport with one controller was contrary to the FAA's verbal guidance it cannot be determined cannot be determined that this is contributing to the accident so i think it is Yes, I believe that it probably is, too.
2: But they basically can't say that by staffing more people, it would have in its entirety prevented the accident. No,
0: not necessarily, of course, because they still would have had the same timing. They still could have been just as fatigued, but they might have had the opportunity to trade off enough that another tower controller or this tower controller might have paid a little more attention. Now, we don't know that for sure. And still, it is interesting that they brought up the fact that the FAA did verbally tell them that... They should have more people on staff overnight, though they didn't. They weren't legally required to. So the manager for the tower thought, "Nah, we don't need to."
1: The other thing that I just thought about having more than one tower controller is, like I said before, breaks, going pee, and stuff. Because what happens if there's an emergency and someone needs to land at the airport? Mm-hmm. Having two people there is way safer than only having one. Yes. And though I can understand. It's not very busy. Why spend the money on having two people there? Well, better than getting sued. <laughs> so, yep. I don't know. I just feel like it's, like I said before, watching your butt. Yep. Making sure that, you know, stuff like this doesn't happen. Or if there is an emergency, there's people there who know what they're doing. Right. Or switch off enough that if someone's in the bathroom or someone's not paying attention, there's checks
0: so now we get into another interesting point. They found that because of ongoing construction projects at the airport, the charts provided to the crew were inaccurate, and neither the charts, the release paperwork for the air, for the flight, nor the info in the ATIS did not include info about the closure of taxiway alpha posted in a local NOTAM, or notice to airmen. This is really interesting to me, and we'll get into why this didn't matter, but also, let's talk about the fact that this didn't come up. Like, at all. The tower controller didn't mention it. It wasn't in the ATIS information. It wasn't in the paperwork given to them. And it wasn't in the charts that they had. That the taxiway that they were to taxi on to get to runway 22 had changed. It Which, was,
2: if you look at the map visual that we have on our website, you'll see a giant X. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And now...
0: Part of why this doesn't matter is because they they would have got that. far. Well, they never got that far. Absolutely. They didn't get to the point that it was closed because it was closed on the other side of runway two six between two six and two two. So it was a very small portion that was closed and they had created a new taxiway and that was now taxiway alpha. Now, that's the other reason it doesn't matter is because by the time they had gotten there, just like all the other flights, I'm sure it wasn't brought up, but. They could see that it was closed and under construction and the way that the taxiway actually went. So they would have just followed that. Now, this would have added to the confusion, if you ask me, by the time they got to the other side, because they would have been like, well, this doesn't look like what the chart says.
2: Yeah, but two other flights took off without a problem.
0: Right. So, obviously, it wasn't a big one. It's still interesting that they brought it up, and it is clearly a problem, because... Even though this didn't affect this flight, this it could, could have affected other flights. This could have affected others, and this is this is supposed to be noted in all these places that I said, and instead it was only in a notice to airmen. They found that the controller's failure to ensure the flight crew were aware of the altered taxiway alpha was not a factor in the crew's inability to navigate to the correct runway. So again,
1: they didn't get that far.
0: The taxiway didn't mention it, or the, the controller didn't mention the taxiway, but it didn't matter because they didn't make it there. They found that because the info in the local NOTAM about the altered taxiway was not needed for the pilot's wayfinding task, the absence of the NOTAM from the release documents was not a factor in the accident. So, again, it didn't matter. They found that the presence of the extended runway centerline to Taxiway Alpha north of runway 826, so 26, was not a factor in the accident. So, in other words, there was an extended centerline for Taxiway Alpha that would have gone into the closed area. But they found that that wasn't a factor in it anyways because they didn't make it there.
1: Right. Probable cause? Yeah.
0: Do you want to do the probable cause?
1: As it is in the report. (laughs) As per usual.
2: Verbatim. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the flight crew members' failure to use available cues and aids to identify the airplane's location on the airport surface during taxi and their failure to cross-check and verify that the airplane was on the correct runway before takeoff. Contributing to the accident were the flight crew's non-pertinent conversation during taxi, which resulted in a loss of positional awareness, and the Federal Aviation Administration's failure to require that all runway crossings be authorized only by specific air traffic control clearances.
0: So all the things I already said, essentially, which is always how this goes, but all that does make sense.
2: It's a nice little summary.
0: Yes. So then recommendations. So there's a lot fewer of these than there were findings. However, there are three sections. The NTSB recommended to the FAA that there be a requirement that all 121 and 135 operators, so all transport operators, establish procedures requiring all crew members on the flight deck to positively confirm and cross-check the airplane's location at the assigned departure runway before crossing the hold short line for takeoff.
1: Yeah, just look the number. Just make sure you're at the right runway. <laughs> yeah, Double so, check. Yeah. It's not going to hurt anything. Anyway. Now, I don't
0: know this is necessarily in place for the hold short point, But there are usually cross-checks once you're on the runway, you see the big giant number, you make sure that your heading indicator is definitely pointing in the right direction that you have set, all those things.
2: All the things that they should have used and didn't. Yes.
0: they recommended to the FAA to require that all 121 and 135 operators install on their aircraft moving map displays or an automatic system that alerts pilots when a takeoff is attempted on a taxiway or a runway other than the one that was intended.
2: So what planes have this now?
0: So there are airplanes that have this now. Back then, it really didn't make sense. It was very expensive. It would have been very difficult. It would have required a lot of software changes that were just basically not possible on airplanes like the CRG-100. And it's not said that those planes aren't still flying today, but now there are resources in the cockpit regardless that will help. So more modern airplanes like the 787, the A350, the A320 NEOs, and the 737 MAX all now have actually moving maps for ground operations. They show you where you are on the ground. They give you a good idea of where you need to taxi. And they tell you when you've entered a runway. They tell you which runway you are taking off on. This and that.
2: Basically, it's like Google Maps, but for a plane.
0: Essentially. But now there's also what we call the EFB, or the Electronic Flight Bag. This is really... An, Something that has come along in the last 10 years. And so this came along after this accident and is probably the handiest thing that's really ever come along. Instead of carrying all these big paper charts and relying on a lot of human factors, now we have, basically, you can carry an iPad with you or a lot of airlines actually provide in-cockpit systems added to even these older airplanes that act as these electronic flight bags. And they provide you GPS data, they show you where you are, they give you all your charts, they show you where you are at the airport, and they monitor your taxiing. And, I mean, these are available to even, you know, entry-level private pilots. I have ForeFlight on my iPad. And when you taxi toward a runway, it tells you, approaching runway 22. And then it tells you, entered runway 22. And these can even be heard over your headset now in the cockpit, if it's connected to the correct cables.
2: So, Again, it's basically Google Maps.
0: Yes, essentially now we have the technology that you can just carry with you in your flight bag personally and it will give you all of this these moving map displays and give you it'll tell you when you've entered a runway and how much is remaining and you know, make sure that you're in the right place. So, I think that one's really interesting because at the time sure it didn't it really wasn't practical, but now it exists. Absolutely. So, that was one that was followed through with over time as it was practical as technology advanced it. They recommended requiring that all airports certified under Part 139 implement enhanced taxiway centerline markings and surface painting painted holding position signs at all runway entrances. So just saying putting those big giant signs and making sure they're really obvious painted on the taxiway so that as you're taxiing over them, you really have to pay attention to it. And a lot of them, they're big giant reflective signs now painted on the ground.
1: Just Google any airport, you'll see them. Uh-huh. It's really obvious.
0: (laughs) They recommended prohibiting the issuance of a takeoff clearance until after the airplane has crossed all intersecting runways. This is still to the FAA, by the way, because air traffic control towers in the United States are all run by the FAA. And so, therefore, they were telling them that they believe that the air traffic controllers should wait to give takeoff clearance until after the airplanes have crossed all intersecting runways. And I believe this is in place today. That definitely seems like probably the safest one possible. They recommended revising FAA order 7110.65, which is the air traffic control order, to indicate that controllers should refrain from performing admin tasks when moving aircraft are in the controller's area of responsibility. Aircraft first. They had some previous recommendations that they had made, and they would like to reiterate. They recommended requiring that all 121 operators provide specific guidance to pilots on the runway lighting requirements for takeoff operations at night. So basically saying at night, this this airport actually would not have been legal with the lights that they had for part 121 operations. And they're saying that they need to reiterate that to pilots because, okay, the air traffic controller can just say it. And if the pilots don't know what the requirements are for, for airline operations, what they need to have for lighting in order to show them what the airport actually looks like while they're taxiing around, then they shouldn't operate. But they don't know that. They recommended working with the National Air Traffic Controllers Association to reduce the potential for the controller fatigue by revising controller work scheduling policies and practices to provide rest periods that are long enough for controllers to obtain sufficient restorative sleep, and by modifying shift rotations to minimize disruptive sleep patterns, accumulation of sleep debt, and decreased cognitive performance.
1: Which we already talked about. Yes. Be better about scheduling.
0: Yes, but now they're working. They're saying that the FAA should work with the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, basically the union for tra- air traffic controllers, to make sure that they are getting enough rest, much in the same way that pilots do.
2: I, I would argue that it's almost more important for them, too, because they're in charge of so many planes.
0: Yeah, their job is actually generally more stressful. They recommended developing a fatigue awareness and countermeasures training program for controllers, And for personnel who are involved in the scheduling of controllers for operational duty that will address the incidence of fatigue in the controller workforce, causes of fatigue or effects of fatigue on controller performance, and safety and the importance of using personal strategies. So basically saying for the controllers, teach them to identify when they're starting to feel really tired, identify when they're not safe, when they're missing things, when they're You know, when something seems out of place with themselves or with others, and make sure that the people that also schedule those air traffic controllers on duty are aware that those controllers could be fatigued the way that they're being scheduled. They also made a recommendation directly to the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, which was to work with the FAA to reduce the potential for controller fatigue by revising controller work scheduling policies and practices to provide rest periods that are long enough.
1: Which so, is basically the same thing that they said at the FAA did yes, the other they way just around. T- yeah,
0: took it the other way around. So that's it for recommendations. But there is one really important thing that did happen at this airport,
2: which we will also <coughs> have somehow a before and after picture on our website.
0: Yes, and that is that runway two six, the shorter runway,
2: is not there anymore.
0: <laughs> well, it is, but it was entirely moved. They do not cross anymore.
2: It is also now runway, 27. Yeah, yeah, it's it's runway
0: no two seven. Yeah, it's runway no longer two six. Yeah, it's runway two seven now. But they literally moved it up and away from runway two two, further to the west. So they took it further north and further west, so that the runways do not cross. There's now a completely separate taxiway that goes to runway two seven, and so you won't have this problem anymore
2: at that particular at airport. that
0: particular airport of having to cross runway two six to get to two two. Now, it's a straight taxi from the ramp to the end of runway 22 without crossing any other runways. That was amazing. They saw the problem, and they fixed it.
2: And that was an expensive fix.
0: Yeah, because they also had to buy up a lot of land around the airport and take make use of it, completely tear up the old runway and old taxiways, and it in, but they felt that it was a safety thing. They didn't ever want to see this happen again.
2: And there was at the end of Old Runway Two Six, there was a farm or something there, and mm-hmm. there it's was not there anymore. It's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the airport bought that land or whatever. But there was actually a witness at that airport who said that he saw the plane get like ten feet off the ground before it crashed. So he was like, I think it was him and someone else at the airport were the sole witnesses of this incident.
0: So in any case, I mean, really good on their part for making that change. That was definitely incredibly important. And then obviously crew resource management and the breakdown in crew resource management that happened, that, again, those things have really gotten much stricter in the cockpit. So again, you know, I don't think it was entirely their fault on any other given day. They were probably both very, very good pilots. On this day, unfortunately, it broke down.
1: Yeah. wah did you actually
2: see anything about him getting sued?
0: I saw something about, like, legal actions.
2: We're gonna do
1: some boop da boops
2: Okay, so I'm just gonna read a bunch of stuff from the Wikipedia page, which is obviously the most reliable source in the world. In July 2007, a flying instructor for Comair testified that he would have failed both pilots for violating sterile cockpit rules. In July 2008, United States District Judge Carl Forster ruled Delta will not be held liable for the crash because while Comair is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Atlanta-based airline, Comair maintains its own management and policies and employs its own pilots. In December of the following year, the same judge granted a passenger family's motion for partial summary judgment, determining, as a matter of law, that Comair's flight crew was negligent and that this negligence was a substantial factor causing the crash of Flight 5191. I found the, we kind of talked about, I found too. the part. Hold on. It's a paragraph later. Okay. Families of 45 of the 47 passengers sued Comair for negligence. Families of the other two victims settled with the airline before filing litigation. Three sample cases were due to be heard on August 4th, 2008, but the trial was indefinitely postponed after Comair reached a settlement with the majority of the families. Cases brought by Comair against the airport authority and the FAA, arguing each should share in the compensation payments, are now resolved. The case against the airport authority was dismissed on sovereign immunity grounds and the ruling was upheld by the Kentucky Supreme Court on October 1st, 2009. In Comair's case against the United States, a settlement was reached with the United States agreeing to pay 22% of the liability for the crash, while Comair agreed to pay the remaining 78%. All but one of the passenger's families settled their cases after a four-day jury trial in Lexington, Kentucky that ended... In December 2009, the estate and daughters of 39-year-old Brian Woodward were awarded comp- compensatory damages in the amount of $7.1 million. While Comair challenged this verdict as excessive on April 2, 2010, Judge Forster overruled Comair's objections and upheld the verdict. There's more. The Woodward case, formerly known as A. Bear versus Comair, was set for a punitive damages Jury trial on July nineteenth, two thousand ten. In that trial, a different jury was to decide whether Comair was guilty of gross negligence that was a substantial factor causing the crash, and if so, the amount of any punitive damages the jury deemed appropriate. The decision to allow a jury trial was reversed in a later hearing, with the judge ruling that the company couldn't be punished for the reprehensible conduct of its pilot.
0: But there's more. The estates or families of twenty-one of the forty-seven passengers filed lawsuits against Pullanke the first officer. In response, Polanke's attorney, William E. Johnson, raised the possibility of contributory negligence on the part of the passengers.
2: What?
0: (laughs) When asked by the plaintiff's attorney, David Royce, what that meant, Johnson replied that they should have been aware of the dangerous conditions that existed in that there had been considerable media coverage about the necessity of improving runway conditions at the airport. At the time, Johnson submitted the contributory negligence defense he had not yet been able to speak to Polhanky himself. By the time newspapers reported on the court documents, Johnson said he had already told Royce, who criticized the statements, that he would withdraw the argument.
1: Yeah, because what the actual... Yeah. That's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you're supposed to know that there was a thing because there was something on the news about... No, 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 no. 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 Screw you. No. No. Oh, God.
0: Okay, but this goes even further.
1: Oh, my
2: God. I don't want to know now.
0: <laughs> As of 2012, Paul Henke was a wheelchair user, unfortunately. During that same month, Paul Henke filed a lawsuit against the airport and the company that designed the runway and taxi lights.
1: He wasn't paying attention.
0: So, we won't get into all the lawsuit stuff, because a lot of that we also just read straight off of Wikipedia. Thanks,
2: Wikipedia. So, I owe you
0: my life. I know that's only, like, the most reliable source of information, but... Uh, there's...
2: Go look at it. There's citations there.
0: There are citations and stuff, and and you know I'm not. That's you know we're not plagiarizing. That is literally what it says on there. What happened? I don't actually know, and I don't want to be any part of the the legal side of that. You know, it's unfortunate when things like this happen, and everybody just seems to disagree. But yes, there was a lot of suing back and forth, and a lot of people around the world went, "Wow!" And pointing fingers. Yeah,
1: America. Because Americans like to sue people. We do, but I think some of that's just completely ridiculous. Just yeah, honestly, blaming ridiculous. the passengers. Even him being like, "Oh, it's your fu-. no, you weren't paying attention, and you know you weren't paying attention."
2: Okay, well, on that uh, lovely note,
0: we're gonna go into a half hour post episode section
2: where we might start the pizza. So yeah, so we can. So eat we can after that. Oh, I'm gonna so start the pizza. Yeah.
0: start the pizza and stuff. And well,
2: yeah. that was Comair Flight Five One Nine One. Happy
0: birthday, Mike. Happy Thanks birthday. for the recommendation.
2: And have a, a fantastic week, everybody. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram
1: at Hardlandings Podcast, and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen.
0: If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions.
1: This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy.
0: Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus
1: Leo.
2: And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora.
1: Catch you next time.